0: Jeremiah 15, looking at verses 1 through 10 this evening of sin, of repentance, and of irreparable consequences, I'd like to give you a message this evening that contains some perspective. We're going to cover some some uh, ground, which we've covered before in one sense, not that I've preached through Jeremiah 15, 1 through 10 explicitly, but uh, we're going to talk about something. It was maybe a month or two ago that we brought it up in, in a different fashion as we talked uh, about the pagan rituals of the land, particularly causing children to pass through the fire. We spent some time talking about pagan occultism as we traced the roots in the history of that phrase, the Queen of Heaven, right? And we traced the history and the roots of that phrase, the Queen of Heaven, uh, to find this this, uh, occultic religion that goes all the way back Uh, traditionally historically uh, not necessarily biblically but traditionally all the way back to the Tower of Babel whereby we traced what we call the mother-child cult and recognizing this mother-child cult in any number of forms throughout history and at the time we had talked about this egregious sin that would often come along with this the passing of the children through the fire effectively sacrificing the the children infants to devils. We're going to come across that again this evening and mention it in a moment as we do so. Uh, however, I want to go in a little bit of a different direction. I, I felt compelled to only preach ten, uh, preach the first 10 verses of this passage. It's somewhat of an extension of last week. If you recall, at the end of last week in Jeremiah 14, I had mentioned that Jeremiah finishes Jeremiah 14 asking a question and that God answers that question in chapter 15, verse 1. So I said, don't think that the context ends just because the chapter ends. We, there's more to cover, and we'll be covering that this evening. But each time I talk particularly about the issue of children passing through the fire of societies who uh, in in pagan fashion and because of um, uh, this ritualistic and religious zeal for the forces of darkness, whether they think that or not, uh, there is this compulsion that Satan has always desired for child sacrifice, for human sacrifice. And we've connected that on any number of occasions to the egregious sin in our land of abortion. And I always tell you about about, generally speaking, about the historical circumstances of Israel's captivity. And how Israel's captivity, the reason why God could not show them mercy, as we mentioned again a few weeks ago, was because of the sin of Manasseh. And we're going to run into that this evening. And I want to chase that rabbit hole a little bit. The sin of Manasseh. And I want to take you there and I want to show you what this sin was. And I want to then give you a unique perspective on not just the sin. We, we, we're not going to talk about that as, as a matter of application this evening. We've already talked about that. But as a matter of course, I want to then continue to study Manasseh's life and see some interesting and exciting things about his life following this, these choices to sin, and then also to understand some of the lingering consequences as they relate to the nation of Israel. So this evening, we're only going to walk through the first 10 verses of Jeremiah 15, and then we're going to draw some application as we study this particular king King Manasseh. So the Bible says this in Jeremiah 15, beginning in verse 1, Then said the Lord unto me, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Now the text today is a clear continuation, as I mentioned, of the message from last week, right? Recall we left the text last week with Jeremiah praying to God. He begins Jeremiah 14, by begging God for mercy, right? And then Jeremiah 14 ends in the same, in the same way. Uh, remember, it was concerning the dearth, concerning a, a um, uh, drought in the land. And then Jeremiah prays and begs God for mercy. And then at the end of the chapter, again, he says this uh, in verse 22. He says, are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles, that would be false gods, that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Art not thou he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all these things. So Jeremiah says, we have no other hope. We must wait on you. Remember in the chapter, God said, don't pray for this people. Don't pray for their good. There's nothing that I can do for them. Jeremiah intercedes anyway. And he says, I am going to be this intercessor. I am going to seek to intercede for these people. And chapter 15, verse one is God's response to this and it is not a positive response. Jeremiah says, God, I am interceding for the people. And God says, Jeremiah, even if Moses and Samuel, notice it doesn't say or Samuel. If Moses and Samuel stood before me to intercede for this people, I would still not hear them. Now, this is an extremely startling statement. Moses and Samuel could probably reg- be regarded as the two most important intercessors in Israel's history. If we were to go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel lists those that we might regard to be the most righteous people. Uh, Ezekiel talks about Job and Daniel, and there's one more. Uh, I, I, uh, this, this Job, Daniel, and one more. Uh, <laughs> I apologize, it's not coming to my mind. But but God said, even if these three righteous men were in the land, I would not spare the land, right? Uh, the, and we find that in Ezekiel. I apologize, I... I um didn't have that written down, so I don't remember that third one and I can't point you to the passage. Maybe I'll be able to bring it up last week. But God said, I will not spare the land even for their sakes. But here we have this idea of intercessors. If we want to talk about righteous men, men like Job and men like Daniel, those are righteous men for sure. But as far as men that had a true stand-in-the-gap intercessory ministry in Israel, Moses and Samuel would certainly be on the, 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 the A-list of those intercessors. And God says, "Even if they were, they were both in the land, interceding for the people, I would not pardon this people." Recall back in Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 1, God stated that to Jeremiah that if if Jeremiah could find but one man that would execute righteousness in the streets of Jerusalem, he would pardon the city. And of course, there was none. This statement, however, conjures up an even more desperate picture. We don't really know how many years it has been between Jeremiah 5 and Jeremiah 15, but we do know that the mind of God has, in a manner of speaking, shifted. Whereas there was a time where God said, if you can find even one righteous person, I will pardon the city. Now God says, even if the greatest intercessors in Israel's history were standing before me, I would not pardon this city. This is a, a tremendous statement of determined justice. And this is, in itself, um, not just a statement of determined justice, but it, it's, a, it's a reflection of the reality that God's cup can fill up. The cup of His wrath can fill up. The long-suffering can give way to judgment. God will not suffer long forever. God was pushed to such a point That he was unwilling, even if it were for the sake of Moses and Samuel, to pardon the people. Let me grant some perspective on this before we move on, on the power that Moses had with God to intercede. The nation of Israel had come to the borders of the promised land in the book of Exodus, and they had done so in a mere matter of months following their exodus out of Egypt. They send into the land 12 spies to look into the land and to see if it was everything that God had promised it would be. And so they go into the land and when they come back, they bring the grapes of Eskel and they show the fruit of the land and they say it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey and it's everything that God promised it would be. But they also found in the land very strong cities with tall walls And they found in the land strong people with chariots. And they found in the land giants, the sons of Anak. So ten of the twelve spies that returned from the land, one from each tribe, said, While the land is fantastic, this job is insurmountable. We cannot do this. We need to go back to Egypt right now. This is an insurmountable task. These people are too strong. And this caused the people as a whole to respond with tremendous remorse rather than faith, saying that they wished they had stayed in the land of Egypt, effectively rejecting the redemption and the promises of God because of the, the, the character of the land and the, and the, the obstacles that it, that it presented. Of course, the two that said, no, let's go take the land were Joshua and Caleb. And the other 10 said, no, we cannot do this. Well, the Lord responds in Numbers chapter 14, 11 and 12. And the Bible says this. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed unto them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. So God says, that how long? How many signs do I have to show them? I parted the Red Sea. I've led them in the wilderness by cloud and by fire. I have uh, burned the mountain of Sinai. And my voice was so great that the people said, never let us hear the voice of God again. What more can I do to tell them that I'm real and that I'm on their side? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to plague them. I'm going to disinherit them. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make a great nation, a greater nation out of you and your heritage. Moses doesn't have, I mean, in, in one sense, wow, you know, I, get to be the, I get to be the next Abraham, right? I get to be the father of the nation. And yet for all of this, He intercedes for the people. In verse thirteen through nineteen, the Bible says this And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou art that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face. That, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them. Therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So Moses appeals to the character of God. Says, God, what about your testimony? What about your reputation? What about your power among the nations? What about your character as the long-suffering God of great mercy? Let your power be great. Let your mercy be great. Let your long-suffering be great. And pardon this people as you have done so many times from the time that they left Egypt even until now. And God responds to this plea thusly. Verses 20 and 21. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. This is the power that Moses had with the Lord. That as God says, I will disinherit and destroy this people after time, after time, after time of of Israel's failures. Yet God says, because of your intercession, Moses, because of your intercession, according to thy word, I will Pardon this people. Now, with that context in mind, it's situations like this, one of the many times that Moses and Samuel interceded before the Lord successfully, that adds weight to the reality of God saying, even if both Moses and Samuel were interceding for this people at this time in history, I would not pardon. This nation. So the natural question that must be asked then is this. What could possibly have happened in the land or be happening in the land that was so far from God, that was so egregious in the sight of God? How did they get so far gone that God would use such severe language and determination in casting them out of the land? We'll find out as we continue. Verse 2, the Bible says, And it shall come to pass, this is God speaking to Jeremiah, if they say unto thee, whither shall we go forth? Then thou shalt tell them, thus saith the Lord, such as are for death to death, such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. So God now tells Jeremiah, if the people ask you where Where will we be sent? You say that that even if Moses and Samuel were here, it wouldn't spare us that we are going to be sent away. Where are we going, Jeremiah? Where's God sending us to? Unto which God says, those that are ordained to die will die. And then he gives two subcategories of death. Those ordained for the sword to the sword and those ordained to famine to the famine. Some of you are going to starve. Some of you are going to be killed by the sword. But those that are ordained to die are going to die. And then he says, those of you that aren't ordained to die will go into captivity. And we know that captivity to be in Babylon. So God gives four or these, these various outcomes, but, but none of them is good. None of them contain any comfort. And this negativity is compounded in verse 3. He says, "...and I will appoint over them four kinds, saith the Lord, the sword to slay and the dogs to tear and the fowls of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour." and destroy. So God says there's four kinds of death that might come. There is the death of the sword to slay. We mentioned that already. There's the death of the dogs to tear. There's the death of the fowl in the heavens to devour and the beasts of the earth to destroy. It's a picture of utter annihilation and humiliation. We've seen before. We'll see again this idea that uh, God says that there won't even be the opportunity to bury the dead, that there won't be anyone there to do it, but that They're all just going to lie out there until the beasts of the field devour them and the birds of the air pick them clean. And that's the idea. It's a very um, undignified death. Now God's pronouncement finishes in verse 4 and he says this, And I will cause them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. And here we have it. Why? Why can't God show mercy? Because of the things which Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, did in Jerusalem. And this is where we're going to park. But first, there's another six verses I want to get through. So we're going to preach through those first, and then I'm going to come back to this. We're going to walk through it a little bit, and then that will draw us directly into our application this evening, So let's finish this context on to verse 5. Verses 5 and 6, the Bible says this, For who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem? Or who shall bemoan thee? Or who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord. Thou art gone backward. Therefore will I stretch out mine hand against thee and destroy thee. I am weary with repenting. God asks the city, who's going to have pity on you? Who will weep for you? Who will even turn aside to ask of your condition? If you don't have the Lord, Jerusalem, what do you have? What other nation is going to care about you? What other people group are going to inquire after your welfare? If you have abandoned the God who loves you and who cares for you, who else do you have? This is what Jeremiah kind of said at the end of chapter 14, right? God, we don't have anyone else to run to. The vanity of the Gentiles can't help us. No one else is going to care for us. We only have you. And God acknowledges, that's absolutely right. You have nothing but me. And yet, God says, the city has forsaken him. They have backslidden They have rejected the one in whom their success is inextricably tied. And God says, I'm I'm weary with repenting. He has on any number of occasion changed his mind, exercised more loving kindness and long-suffering and mercy, and not caused the nation to go into the totality of judgment. But this time he says, I'm settled because of the sin of Manasseh, because of the things he did in Jerusalem, I cannot this time relent. Verses 7 and 8. He says, And I will fan them with a fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they return not from their ways. Their widows are increased to me above the sand of the seas. I have brought upon them the mother of the young men, Uh, Excuse me, I have brought upon them against the mother of the young men a spoiler noonday, and I have caused him to fall upon it suddenly. And terrors upon the city. To fan them with a fan, uh, we would believe directly relates itself to the concept of fire, the idea of fanning a flame. If you've ever seen a person with a, a large forge, uh, maybe uh, seeing either a rustic forge or, or, or way back in the day where they'd have the big fans and they'd, they'd um, push those fans up and down or they'd fan those fans in order to keep oxygen getting into the fire, to fan the flames of the fire to make the flames hotter. That's the idea here. He says, I will fan them with a fan. He will will increase their judgment. Flame being a symbol of tribulation, of difficulty, of judgment. He says, I will increase the judgment at the gates, meaning that God will bring their tribulation directly to the door. The people will be bereaved of their children. That word bereaved, meaning to be deprived of them, to have them taken away. And why? Why? because they have refused to repent. So God looks ahead and sees a nation of widows, their husbands and their sons having died in battle, their daughters having been taken as spoils of war, the city being defenseless and weak. So he says, their widows are increased to me above the sand of the seas. This context of widowhood continues in verse 9. God says, she that hath borne seven languisheth. She hath given up the ghost, her son is gone down while it was yet day. She hath been ashamed and confounded, and the residue of them will I deliver to the sword before their enemies, saith the Lord. The essence of this lamentation is that the woman who has more children is going to be more sorrowful. Generally speaking, the mindset, particularly in the day where infant mortality was high, is the more children I have, the more children will will. You know, live and the the more I'll be able to be comforted in my bereavement. If I lose a child, I have other children still. Jeremiah says, and the Lord says here, the woman that has seven children, the woman that has enough children to compensate in her bereavement for a loss of one or two is going to languish because all of them are going to be gone. The more children you have, the more bereaved you will be. Her son has gone down while it is yet day. Instead of seeing these things happen in the twilight years of her life, instead of um, uh, uh, living the, the whole of her life and um, dying in the end years of her life, she will be cut off early. She will die. Her family will die. They will be ashamed. They will be confounded. They will be delivered to the sword. We finish our exposition today in Jeremiah 10 and we'll roll back to this next week to pick up in our exposition as we finish off the chapter. But verse 10 says this, Jeremiah speaking. He says, Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent on usury nor men men have lent to me on usury Yet every one of them cur- doth curse me. So in verse 10, Jeremiah turns the lamentation inward. He says, uh, moms, you're going to be widows uh, and, and you're, you're, you're going to be childless and you're gonna, your son is going to fall before it sets, before the end of the day. You're going to die. Everyone's going to die. Very, very terrible message. And then Jeremiah says, In me. He says, woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me. Jeremiah laments his own birth and he laments being born not because he's afraid of dying with the sword. He's asked those questions. He'll ask again and the Lord says he's going to protect him. But more because he says, I have been born as the one who has to give this message. Woe is me for being born because I have been born to be a man that is hated, that is cursed by those who see me because of the message I have to to bear. He says, I've defrauded no one. I have not lent to anyone on interest, nor has anyone lent to me on interest. I've been righteous. I've done right. I have not made myself an enemy of people through uh, taking advantage of them or through defrauding of them or through uh, uh, unsure business practices. I haven't done any of that, but people still curse me. I am born as a man of strife and a man of contention because of the message I have to tell. Jeremiah is not happy to have to give this message, but it's the message that he had to give. He's a truth teller, therefore men curse him. Well, we're going to finish here for today as it relates to the text I mentioned already. I'd like to go back before we draw our application to verse 4. And I will cause them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. Now, I'd like to walk through that a little bit and begin with a timeline, a working timeline here to understand what's going on. Jeremiah's ministry began during the 31-year reign of King Josiah. At the time of writing, many believe that we are somewhere around the reign of Jehoiachin, the second to the last king. It may be Jehoiakim at this point in his 11-year reign. The actions of Manasseh, as you see Manasseh well before Jeremiah's day, Manasseh reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. He had a very long reign and the actions for which he was particularly uh, uh, judged and for which uh, that were particularly understood by God to be egregious were generally speaking in the first half, the first two thirds of his reign. That means that we're likely talking some 50 or 60 years since Manasseh's sins. And some 50 or 60 years after Manasseh's evils, God says it is for the things that Manasseh did in Jerusalem that I cannot pardon this people. What was it that Manasseh did for which the land so desperately needed to be cleansed? To answer this question, I take you to Second Chronicles 33. In 2 Chronicles 33, the Bible says this, beginning in verse 1. Manasseh was twelve years old when he began to reign, and he reigned fifty and five years in Jerusalem, but did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Balaam and made groves and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Also he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, and he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Also he observed times, And used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. And he wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of this land, which I have appointed for your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes of the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. So here we have it. Hezekiah was one of the godliest kings, at least leading up to the final 15 years of his life. He was one of the the godliest kings. Uh, Let me just mention that. Hezekiah was dying. He said, Lord, for, for the good that I have done, spare me. God gave him 15 more years. How old was Manasseh when he began to reign? Manasseh was 12 And the Bible says that in those final 15 years of Hezekiah's life, he did not serve the Lord as he had before. He lived selfishly. He lived in a manner that was not reflective of the zeal that he had for the Lord. Manasseh only knew the rebellious father. He was 12 years old when he began to reign. He had Manasseh three years into the 15 years that God extended his life, those 15 years of rebellion. Thus, Manasseh never saw the heritage of Hezekiah's love for the Lord. And so it is. Hezekiah, however, was a very, very godly king. He had a son in his old age named Manasseh. But Manasseh did, according to the text, abominations in the land that were worse than the heathen's abominations around them. He erected the altars that Hezekiah had torn down unto false gods. He took an image of a false god and he put it in the temple of God. He caused his children to pass through the fire. That would be sacrificing infants to the fires of Molech. This is child human sacrifice. He compounded this travesty by devoting himself to witchcraft and wizardry. It says he had a familiar spirit, which means he personally communed with a demonic entity. And so all of this provokes the Lord to anger. And the Bible says that when the Lord sent prophets and spoke to the people and to Manasseh, they would not hearken. All throughout the prophets, particularly in Jeremiah, it is a spiritual and moral uh, evil to to see the death of the innocent, the proliferation of spiritism, the deep rebellion that uh, Manasseh had brought to the land. And this was so egregious, in fact, that God took him, Manasseh, out of the land before we get there. We have spoke before of this killing of the innocent. When Cain killed Abel in the second generation of mankind, God told Cain that Abel's blood cried out from the grave. God loves the innocent, and the blood of the innocent being shed is a tremendous and egregious sin in the eyes of the Lord. And I seek to use This example, again, to remind us of a very precarious position within which our nation finds itself as it relates to this very uniquely, at least as it relates to the world, a a uniquely advanced level of the taking of innocent lives through the taking of unborn children. The U.S. is second only to Russia in total abortions per year. The U.S. is sixth per capita in the world, with 4.17 children out of every thousand children killed. This cannot end well for us, and so we have the sins of Manasseh. And notice the tremendously steep decline in each of these. This is from 2003, so it was quite a while ago. But notice the tremendous 15 years ago, this tremendously steep decline after the United States here in total number. That number has been falling, by the way, though. That 1.2 million has fallen below 1 million in the last 15 years per year, which is uh, a tremendous thing, to say the least. So Manasseh has done all of this evil. We pick up in verse 11, and the Bible says this, Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the hosts of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. So the Lord allowed Assyria to come into the land and to take the land, and then the Assyrians took King Manasseh and sold him to Babylon as a a slave, as a captive. And the Bible says in verse 12, when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him, And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now, after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gaon in the valley, even to the entering in at the fish gate, and compassed about fell and raised it up a very great height, and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idols out of the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord, and in Jerusalem, and had cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Now that's a pretty good ending. He did all of these tremendous and egregious sins. God judged him, causing Assyria to come in, going into captivity, into Babylon, bound with fetters in his affliction. Something somewhat unique and amazing happens to Manasseh. He comes to himself. In his affliction, he humbles himself before the Lord and he repents of his sin. And the Lord heard him. Now, that's not surprising, right? Surprising that Manasseh, among the kings, would humble himself after all of the egregious sin and that he had steeled himself against the Lord for all of those years, hearing the prophets and ignoring them. But it's not surprising that the Lord heard him in his repentance. That's what God does. It's just like God. That is, that is, that is God, to a T. So God hears him, God blesses him and not only does God forgive him and restore him, but God gives him back the kingdom. God sends him from Babylon back to Jerusalem and makes him king again. And so Manasseh is able to go back into the land, fortify the land, tear down the altars, that he had erected to false gods, repair the altar of the Lord, sacrifice offerings. He served the Lord in faithfulness and he called upon the nation to do the same. And there is absolutely nothing so marvelous in all the world than this, than the restoration of a soul through a repentant heart and the turning in zeal to the God of all flesh to serve him. And of course, the, the gracious and loving response of our Lord, which is what he does to forgive and to restore and there is no one that is too far gone manasseh had sacrificed children on the altars to devils he had communed with familiar spirits he had rejected the prophets of the lord for all we know he had had the prophets of the lord killed but when he cried out to the lord in repentance the lord heard him and restored him that is the god we serve but there's one more verse to read in second chronicles and unfortunately It does not share in this joy. Verse 17 says this, Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord their God only. So the people turned to the Lord because they had to turn to the Lord. They were commanded to turn to the Lord, but unlike their king, who had turned wholesale to the Lord, they did so because they were compelled. Nevertheless, they retained their high places. We saw we, we can see this in the time of the judges. We can see this in the time of the kings, that when we see this idea, nevertheless, they kept their high places. The idea is that they didn't turn their hearts fully. There's still just a little bit of their heart that says, we might need this again. So let's just keep this around. Let's not tear down the high places as God explicitly commands us to do. Let's keep these pagan high places. We'll just, we'll just sacrifice to the Lord on the high places. And from this we learn that while Manasseh turned wholesale to the Lord, this root of pagan evil remained in the land. Manasseh could turn his heart, but he had no power to turn the heart of the nation back to the Lord. And from this we're going to draw a few brief applications this evening. Of sin, of repentance, and of irreparable consequences... There are times in our lives where we choose a path of rebellion. There is, of course, that time before we were saved when we walked in rebellion and did any number of things, of things of which, as Paul says, we are now ashamed. That was that former life, and we get saved, and we leave that former life behind. But even in our saved state, we can drift into a path of rebellion a path which brings with it all of the natural and spiritual consequences that accompany rebellion. In this case, Manasseh's case, there was a tremendous degree of spiritual wickedness, sacrificing humans on the altar to devils, witchcraft, uh, murder of the innocent, spiritual apostasy, to a degree where there's simply no need to contemplate it. And Manasseh lived in the consequences of those actions. No doubt there were tremendous spiritual and physical consequences, but then we see these consequences come to this, this very visibly manifest head as God removes him from the land through Assyria and sends him off to Babylon. He was stripped of all blessing, he was stripped of all authority, and taken to Babylon to live out his days in shame and contempt. That's sin. But we also consider repentance. With repentance comes forgiveness, and with forgiveness came restoration for Manasseh. And while full restoration is never promised by God per se, the consequences of sin might linger still, we see that Manasseh was restored. We don't have any record of God saying, Manasseh, if you repent, I'll restore you to your kingdom. But God did. Manasseh sought unto the Lord to undo the damage that was done and the Lord did that for him and he served the Lord with gladness and distinction. But with all of this comes a warning that while we can control ourselves, we can control our own decisions and maybe the former rebellions of old have given way to repentance and humility and I hope they have in your heart. I hope that you're not living in this place of rebellion. If so, you understand what rebellion means. We know that God does not ignore rebellion. We can think, we can convince ourselves in one way, shape, or form that God is not bearing out the consequences of our sin in our lives, our unrepentant sin. But the Bible says if you're a child of the living God, that you will be chastened. And if you're not being chastened, then the Bible says you are an illegitimate child. You are no son of God. So if we're walking in rebellion, we are being chastened for that rebellion. But the Bible, of course, says in First John that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we have this promise, but this promise of cleansing should by no means or under any circumstances give us comfort to step into rebellion. We should never feel the comfort of stepping into rebellion simply saying, well, I'll have time to repent later. That that mindset should never even once glimmer into the heart of the follower of the true and living God. And not just because we understand the consequences of the moment of rebellion. But we need to understand that our sin can affect others. That we don't live, we don't exist outside of others. Young people, you may not understand this mean, what this means, but we don't live our lives in a vacuum. Not like the woo vacuum, right? We don't live our lives in a vacuum. Ask your parents. Our lives touch the lives of others. As parents, our years of rebellion may give way to humility and submission and blessing, but those Actions in those years of rebellion may have rubbed off on our children a little bit. And I say this not to discourage, not to confuse, not to say it's hopeless, not to make you paranoid, but to remind us of several principles. Principle number one young people, the reason why we teach you these things early, we call you unto wisdom early, the reason why it is not acceptable. When somebody says, oh, he's just a teenager sowing his wild oats. Oh, just let him do his thing. Oh, you know, it's just the, the natural rebellion of youth. No, rebellion is, it, rebellion is natural, but it's not biblical ever. No, you should not have the mindset that you're just going to sow your wild oats and live in rebellion for a few years. See, the problem is there is always an opportunity to repent There, there's always a God who is faithful to forgive as long as the, your your life is not taken, as long as, as, as there's that, that, as long as there's time, but the loss of time, the scars of sin, these are things which don't always go away. The grace and mercy of God is certainly sufficient to cover a multitude of sins, but sin can have unintended consequences and sin can have irreparable consequences. There are some things that just can't be undone. There are some things that just can't be undone. There can be forgiven. There can be restoration. You can still be used, but there are some things that can't be undone. To that end, the, the wisdom of the Word of God calls our young people unto that wisdom. Unto living this life of trusting the Word of God. Of trusting that what God's Word says is true. Now don't get me wrong here. I don't want anyone to misinterpret me. I am not saying that there is a sin for which you will be damned to hell forever. Save the sin of unbelief. That's what the Bible tells us. I'm not talking about heaven or hell in this context. I'm talking about the consequences of sin in this life. And so we talk about the consequences of sin in our own lives. And sometimes, even though the Lord forgives and even though He restores and even though there, can be, uh, there, there is forgiveness found with the Lord, sometimes the things that we do, the scars that we might have to carry, the consequences of our sin, can't always be undone. Second, we need to know, remember, keep in our minds, that our sin doesn't always just affect us. Manasseh did what he wanted. He followed his own path. He did his thing, human sacrifices and witchcraft and wizardry and and communing with a familiar spirit. And he did all of these things. And then he was punished for them mightily. And he suffered for them and he was afflicted. And he, he, he went to Babylon, and in his affliction, he cried out unto the Lord, and the Lord restored him, and he came back with zeal, and he served the Lord with gladness, and he did everything that he could to, to, to undo what was done, and he went to his people, and he said, I was wrong. The Lord is God, and he cleansed the temple, and he did what he was supposed to do in the temple, and he did his offerings and his oblations, and he forced the people to the extent that he could to serve the Lord and the Lord only, but they didn't tear down the high place. Places, But the high places which he had erected at the beginning of his ministry didn't go away and there was nothing that he could do to to change the hearts of the people. He can cleanse the element that he has authority over, but he had already lost the heart of the people. The heart of the people did not return with his heart to the Lord. And so now we are here some 50 or 60 years later in the days of Jeremiah. And these people are not listening to the Lord just as they did not listen in the days of Manasseh. And their hearts were still far from God. And while Manasseh could do everything that he could to try to repair the damage that was done, and while Manasseh in his heart found full restoration, sometimes our decisions affect others. And once that seed is planted, it's just going to grow. And the last, the only thing that we have left is simply to pray and beg God for mercy on their behalf. And it is to this degree that we must understand that when we step into these decisions, these selfish decisions, we don't know what seeds we might be planting in someone else. Seeds of rebellion. Rebellion. We don't know if we seek to have somebody join with us in our sin because sin loves company. It always does. It is so amazing. Sin loves company. child wants to do something wrong. The first thing he's going to do is find someone to do it with him because that dulls the conscience. It uh, emboldens the will. So I drag someone else into my sin with me to feel better about it. Later, I feel bad about that sin, but What about that person that I drug in with me? Maybe I, by the grace of God, am pulled out of that that path. But what if they continue on it? A path that I encourage them down. Because of my rebellion. Because of my choice. Are they making their own choice too? Yes, they're making their own choice. Every person in Israel was making their own choice, but that choice was kickstarted by Manasseh's rebellion as the king in those years. There was once a man named Manasseh, and his sin was great. He repented. He was forgiven. He was restored. He was blessed. But the effects of his sin lay outside of his power to undo. He had influenced the nation against God. And though he himself undid undid the damage that he could, he couldn't repair the damage in their hearts. There once was a man named Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, consented to the death of Christians, was a persecutor of the early church. He was present at the martyrdom of Stephen, the deacon. He repented. He was forgiven. He was dramatically used of God in any number of ways. He was restored. He was blessed. He became a spiritual leader in the church. But none of that repentance could bring Stephen back from the dead. The damage had been done, the effects of Saul's sin remained. They were under the blood, they were forgiven. I'm not talking about that, right? He had been forgiven but he couldn't in his repentance bring Stephen back from the dead. There's so many nuances to the lesson of Manasseh. We spoke of great sin, learned lessons which compel us to love what God loves and hate what God hates. We speak of great mercy, are reminded of the character of our God which calls us not to continue in sin that grace may abound, but compelled by grace to flee to him, to get to higher heights Of blessing through loving obedience and repentance. But we're also reminded of consequences. That though restoration and forgiveness are always found with our God, there are things in life which, once we've let them out of the cage, might not be able to be put back in. Our decisions can still affect others. To the extent that we are able to control our own choices, we have no capacity to control what others do because of our encouragement and example. Sin is a destructive force that is not relegated only to the one that commits it. Once we spread the seeds of rebellion, once we spread those seeds of evil, once we spread those seeds in the hearts of others, we have no control over whether or not they'll grow and how they grow in the lives of others. And to this end, we are called to be vigilant, not just for our own sake, it is not enough for us simply to say, well, this is just me and my sin, and so I'm going to do my thing, and then I can repent if I need to repent, or, or whatever the case may be. Let us remember that it's not just for our sake that we be vigilant, but for the sake of others with whom we interact. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.